the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated briefly. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. I believe in the right of the people to rule. I believe again that the American people are as a whole capable of self-control and of learning by their mistakes. Welcome to Serve to Lead. I'm your host, James Strzok. As we get started, may I ask a favor? If you find value in this podcast, please give us a high rating on iTunes. We're honored today to have with us one of the preeminent public intellectuals and political scientists in the United States, indeed the world, Francis Fukuyama. Professor Fukuyama, based at the Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University, has written a provocative and important new book, Identity, the Demand for Dignity, and the Politics of Resentment. Francis Fukuyama, welcome to Serve to Lead. Thank you very much for having me on. You've long exhibited a striking capacity to capture the zeitgeist in moments of historic change. Your essay and subsequent book, The End of History, helped set the discussion at the close of the Cold War. Your latest book focuses on a current that's making its way through the entire world, identity politics. What prompted you to write this book, and what is your hope for its effect? Uh, well, honestly, the, uh, the reason I wrote the book was that Donald Trump got elected in 2016. Uh, in the last few years, you've seen the rise of a lot of uh, populist parties, not just uh, Trump in the United States, but uh, in Eastern Europe, in Western Europe, in Brazil, in many other parts of the world. And this is all troubling to me because uh, I think that many of these populist movements are actually threatening, uh, let's say, the liberal part of liberal democracy, meaning the constitutional checks and balances that are necessary in a true liberal democracy. And I wanted to explain why this was happening, what the sources of this populism were, uh, and then, you know, possibly what you do about it. Um, and so that was really the, the trigger for, uh, for writing this. And by the way, 2016, it wasn't just the Trump uh, election. It was also Britain voting to get out of the European Union in, uh, in Brexit. And since then, there have been, uh, you know, even more populist groups elected in Brazil, in Italy, in, you know, other parts of the world. What did you think about the recent vote for the European Union elections in Great Britain with Nigel Farage and his new Brexit party having such a remarkably strong showing? Well, you know, overall, I think the European uh, Parliament elections were good news in the sense that uh, the populist across Europe did not do as well as was feared. And so there's still a majority in favor of staying in the union. And I think that threat has been beaten back. Uh, on the other hand, in Britain, uh, Nigel Farage's group is, uh, you know, emerged as the largest party um, and and uh, really upset the conservatives. Uh, I The significance of that is a little bit complicated because Britain is getting out of the uh, European Union, supposedly, they actually weren't supposed to participate in this election because they were supposed to have left the Union by uh, the end of March, and they let that deadline lapse. And so it's not clear what this vote represents. I mean, 
in the past, most votes for the European Parliament were not taken that seriously because the Parliament doesn't really have any um, real power. And particularly if you're going to get out of the European Union, it matters even less, you know, how you vote. And so I think that Farage was benefiting from a kind of throwaway protest vote where people could vote for him to express their unhappiness, but they knew that they actually wouldn't necessarily have to live with the consequences. But it does suggest that there's still this hardcore of about a third of Britain that really is willing to get out of the European Union, uh, even in a chaotic, no-deal way. Could you please explain how you would define identity politics and how we're seeing it in the United States today in respect of Trump, but also more broadly? Well, identity is based on this feeling that I think everybody has, that they have an inner self and that that inner self has a worth that is sometimes not recognized by other people in the society. And identity leads then to an emotional response. When you're not recognized, when you're disregarded, when your dignity is not respected, you get angry. And that's what drives a lot of people into politics. Now, that identity can be an individual identity, but oftentimes it's an identity that's shaped by your membership in a group. It could be built around nations, so nationalism is a, a form of identity politics. It could be based on religion, so I think a lot of Islamism, for example, today is actually more better understood as, a, as an assertion of identity rather than necessarily an expression of piety. Uh, it can also be based on these other categories that we're familiar with in the United States, gender, race, ethnicity, uh, sexual orientation. All of these are ways that people have of understanding who they are deep down. Uh, and if the society doesn't grant them that recognition, uh, then, you know, they want to go into politics uh, to get recognition. Uh, and so that's why there's actually a linkage between uh, identity groups on the left, you know, which are usually based on social justice movements, uh, and these new identity groups on the right that tend to be based more on uh, on nation or uh, ethnicity. Let me ask a question that some people have posed to me, and having the great authority yourself here, you could set this straight. Some people say that Americans have always been, perhaps uniquely, about creating identities immigrating to the country, moving west, changing names, self-creation, and so on. And today, there is arguably more freedom to do that and more fluidity, even on parts of identity that used to be viewed as immutable than perhaps ever before. At the same time, as the demand for recognition expands, some identities appear to believe or seek some kind of preeminent position or favored position over others on various grounds. At the same time, many seem to think that at this moment of maximal time of self-expression, there's little shared sense of support or recognition for the system or the ideals that make it possible. What is your take? Well, um, there's several things going on in that question. Uh, I think that you know, the United States has always been a diverse place. There's always been a lot of immigration. Uh, but I think that for a lot of the history of the United States, there really was a desire to Americanize. So people would come to the country, but they would want to join the mainstream. 
Uh, oftentimes they were excluded from that if they weren't the right skin color or the right ethnicity, but there was a desire, you know, to be seen as an American. And I think one of the great virtues of the United States is that over time it created a kind of national identity that made it possible for a very diverse number of people to uh, assimilate into the mainstream culture. Uh, I think that since the 1960s and the growing awareness of narrower ethnically based uh, uh, identities, that system has broken down in a, in a certain sense so that the desire to Americanize is really not felt nearly as strongly uh, by people. Uh, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think that, uh, you know, people don't want to simply be homogenized into a kind of white bread uh, culture. They want to hold on to, you know, the traditions that their ancestors, you know, brought with them uh, and so forth. And so I think, you know, the issue is really having the right kind of balance between, you know, all of us are going to have specific identities uh, from our own backgrounds, our parents, our ancestors, you know, our individual experiences. But I think that needs to be balanced by the political system's need for a common political identity based, you know, which is what citizenship is, is based on, because uh, a political community has to be a community. Uh, even if you disagree about specific issues, you have to uh, agree on the legitimacy of the system that allows you to deliberate and uh, to make decisions in common with other uh, citizens. And I think that's the part of identity that's gotten weaker over the last um, over the last few years. When you talk about Americanism on the one hand and you talk about citizenship on the other, how are they different or how do they overlap? Well, citizenship is just the formal recognition in law of your acceptance into the community. Uh, you know, what citizenship entails has actually narrowed over the years because you can now get a lot of, you know, um, welfare benefits, uh, even if you're not a citizen. The one thing that it still conveys, though, uh, in the United States and in other countries is the right to vote. Uh, meaning that you have a share of political power. Uh, and that's a, you know, that's a legal expression of your membership in a broader community. Now, actually being a member of that community and accepting the identity is kind of broader than just citizenship. Citizenship is a starting place, but, you know, uh, ideally membership in a national community involves accepting a you know, broader set of cultural practices and values that mark you as, you know, being part of that community. I mean, let me give you one example of that. Like, uh, there was a genre of World War II war movies, you know, where you'd have a an American uh, soldier that had been captured, um, or, or rather a prisoner. Uh, I'm sorry, not an American, but let's say uh, you, you, you captured somebody and you wanted to know whether they were really uh, an American or not. And what was it that you asked them, uh, you know, to test whether they were truly American? So in a lot of these movies, it was who won the last World Series, right? <laughs> uh, because knowledge of baseball was actually a component of American national identity. It was the national sport. You know, I think over the years it's been displaced by other sports, so it's a little bit, it plays a little bit less that role. But, you know, what it meant was not just being a citizen, that's the legal status, but also knowing who won the World Series and being kind of interested in, you know, in that national pastime. 
so that's, I think, that kind of gets at the difference. So citizenship is the narrow legal basis of the community, but the identity is something that's broader. When you gave that great example from the 20th century, it, it perhaps points to a question. In the 20th century, we were in an age of centralization across the board. And now, in many ways, we're in an age of decentralization. How do you factor that into your analysis? Uh, you know, it's funny. I mean, we're both decentralized, and then we're more centralized than ever <laughs> in certain ways. Uh, you know, I think communications technology, the Internet, has allowed us to communicate in a mass way with more people, you know, than ever before. And so, in that sense, uh, we don't live, I mean, we physically live in one place, but we can mentally live in many different places because we're connected with a lot of other different peoples and cultures and countries and experiences, you know, and, and those opportunities are greater than ever. Uh, politically, um, maybe we are decentralized in certain ways. Uh, there's certainly more participation, you know, at, at, at local levels. I think the troubling part of that decentralization is really in the cultural and social sphere and is symbolized by what's called, you know, what's going to be, be called the filter bubble, where you can live online in a small community, uh, basically of crackpots that believe some conspiracy theory, you know, you believe that Hillary Clinton was running a sex, a child sex ring out of a pizza parlor in Northwest Washington. And you know, the people in your community all are convinced that this was absolutely the case, uh, uh, that this was a, you know, this was a true fact. And you don't have any communication with people that, you know, might give you information that would lead you to question that, you know, that particular belief. I think that's the kind of decentralized, you know, identity or community that I think, you know, is, is really been problematic for the United States. You used the term Americanism, and it seemed a bit to have a negative connotation. Is it possible to have a concept of Americanism, a shared set of ideals and historical understandings in this century, or how do you think about that today? Well, not only do I think it's possible, I think it's really necessary. I mean, I think you can't have a democracy unless you have a fundamental shared sense of uh, identity in that you're all part of a democratic political community. Now, Americanism, you know, may have a bad odor in many circles because of its misuse. Uh, you know, you remember the um, House Un-American uh, uh, Activities Committee that was used by Joe McCarthy to target communists, where Americanism was defined in a particular uh, political way uh, as, a, as a means of attacking, you know, perceived opponents, perceived political opponents. And that sense of Americanism uh, is not right. I mean, I think the cultural, you know, hegemony of Anglo people, you know, in, in any uh, hegemonic way is, is not something that's appropriate in a, you know, a diverse society like the one we live in. But Americanism, meaning basic belief in the Constitution and the rule of law and the principle of human equality, uh, belief in, you know, a common set of values, I think that's actually 
something that should be welcomed. And in fact, as I said, you know, it's not just uh, acceptable, it's, it's actually uh, important as a, as a means of building political community in a democracy. Well, you've, of course, attracted your share of skeptics and critics on these important ideas. And one was the Georgia politician Stacey Abrams in a recent edition of Foreign Affairs, published by the Council on Foreign Relations. Could you tell us a little bit about your take on that disagreement to the extent there is one and what it does to elucidate the decisions on this issue that lay before us all? Well, I think that the basic disagreement actually was a little bit of a tactical disagreement because what I argued in my original article was that if the Democratic Party doubled down on identity politics, meaning its focus on, you know, race, gender, sexual orientation, all of these different identity groups that make up the, you know, their coalition, uh, that that would tend to alienate, um, a lot of white working class voters and that those were actually quite important, you know, that you had to somehow attract them back into the democratic uh, fold. And she disagreed with that. She said that, you know, actually you have to focus on these groups because that's the only way that you get social justice. And she didn't think that, you know, you needed a different kind of strategy in order to, uh, you know, to win back those, those white voters. Uh, and I, I guess I'm still not persuaded. I mean, what I said in my response was, you know, I can see from the standpoint of a, a candidate running for office why you would want to emphasize uh, identity politics, because all of your activists live in these identity groups. And so if you want people to come out and vote, uh, if you want to uh, get people knocking on doors and, and passing out leaflets and that sort of thing, then that's the kind of issue you emphasize, but if you want to govern uh, and and make some effort at trying to heal the polarization, you know, that's become so extreme in our political culture in the last few years, you have to figure out a way of talking to people that are not members of those particular identity groups. So I think that was the essence of the argument. And, um, you know, I guess we'll just have to disagree about that. Well, there's certainly a fault line in some people's eyes based on race. And the United States imposed identity on Americans of African descent historically, as well as on indigenous peoples. Identity politics may be inconsistent with the founding ideals of the country, yet those same founders placed an involuntary identity, if you will, uh, onto various groups. What's the best way to work through this conundrum? Is it reparations? Uh, what kind of ways are there to square this? Well, um, so let me make something clear. Uh, <laughs> the reason that identity politics on the left emerged is that the mainstream society treated racial groups, women, you know, sexual minorities in particular ways, discriminatory ways. And so it's natural that as a group as a member of those discriminated against groups, you're going to feel solidarity with other people that are in your situation and you're going to seek remedies, uh, you know, as a group. So there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. That's kind of basic social mobilization and social justice. The problem, I think, uh, with certain interpretations of identity politics come at the moment where 
that group identity becomes a kind of essential characteristic that trumps all other, you know, competing uh, considerations. So that, you know, the fact that you are African American or female gets you the job regardless of your qualifications, be simply because you know your your identity in that in that sense of that being a member of that group uh, is the most important thing about you. And that's where I think you get, you know, uh, you get into trouble. So, you know, something like Black Lives Matter uh, refer, refers to police violence that exists in, you know, certain metropolitan police departments. It's a terrible thing. It should be corrected. You know, there's no reason why. <clears throat> and, and, and actually, you know, if you think about it, that's not even an expression of identity politics. I mean, that's just a specific abuse that it's suffered by. Uh, by African Americans, and that's something that needs to be corrected. The, you know, the problematic part is where you say, well, uh, you know, the fact that we've been treated as a group means that we're going to accept that characterization, that our race is the most important thing about us, and everything we do now is going to be connected to, you know, our race. Uh, and that's, I think, where you, you, you know, you get into trouble. How do you think about the history on this? One, frankly, here's a very divergent notion of U.S. history in public debate today, with some people presenting it as an unceasing cavalcade of oppression and others viewing it as a progress of liberation. Where do you come out on that, and how important is our shared understanding of history? Well, first of all, uh... <laughs> Your last question, uh, to take that first, it's extremely important. That's what national identity is. It's, it's basically the stories that a people tell each other about where they came from and where they're going. Uh, so I think you need that. Uh, I think that um, the, um, the problem is that there are two false narratives about the United States that are contesting each other. You know, the one is you know, the one on the right that would simply say that, you know, would try to whitewash the history of racism and patriarchy and, you know, injustice in the United States. Um, the other one is the one on the left that would say that basically the history of the United States is a history of oppression uh, and, you know, that there isn't really anything redeeming going on in that process. And I think there has to be a kind of a middle position where you can, you know, perfectly honestly acknowledge all of the historical injustices that have uh, existed in American history. And you can say, you know, nonetheless, the project was implicit in the Declaration of Independence assertion of the equality of human equality has been, you know, a progressive one that over time has led to the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment, to enfranchisement of women, to you know, rights for Native Americans, to the civil rights movement. Uh, so you can acknowledge both the historical wrongs and you can, you know, recognize the fact that there has been progress. And finally, you can recognize that that's not a completed promise. You know, the promise was made, part of it was kept, but a lot of it still is yet to be implemented. And I think, you know, you can build a, a shared history around a narrative like that. Uh, and I don't think that, you know, you need to pick one of the alternatives that simply whitewashes that history or else simply demonizes it. You've given a lot of thought to how the country might 
begin to do this, could you please share with us your ideas of some specific steps that could be taken to restore and update our sense of national identity? Well, so part of it is, you know, simply the way that national leaders talk about the country. And I think, you know, talking about it in more integrative terms is important. We've had a lot of divisive politicians uh, in recent years that have actually tried to exacerbate some of those sort of racial and gender and other kinds of divisions, and that's not uh, that's not helpful. Uh, in terms of concrete policies, I really like the idea of national service. I think that a lot of Americans have this idea that they've got rights, uh, the government owes them stuff, it owes them protection, and it owes them, you know, benefits, but they don't have a strong sense that they owe the government much in return. They don't want to pay their taxes, uh, and they, you know, oftentimes don't even want to obey the law. But I do think that national service would teach people that uh, actually you do have duties as a citizen, you know, positive duties that maybe you need to give a year of your life, you know, to the common good. And I think as a matter of social engineering, uh, if it's structured in the right way, uh, just as in the military today, uh, it would put you in contact with Americans that you don't normally deal with, uh, you know, Americans who are um, of a different race, uh, you know, different region, different social class. Uh, unfortunately, we have segregated ourselves into these hermetically sealed communities where we only deal with people that are very much like uh, ourselves. So I think a, a, a system of national service would probably serve that end. You've worked all over the world. You've studied so much history. Do you see examples from other countries or from history here or elsewhere that could serve as a template for this task today? Um, well, there's plenty of examples of this kind of nation building uh, that you could choose. But let me point to one that I mentioned actually in my book, which was uh, portrayed in the movie Invictus. You know, the, the movie was about the 1996 Rugby World Cup that was held in South Africa. Uh, Morgan Freeman played Nelson Mandela, who had this vision of a South African national identity that was, you know, it was kind of the rainbow country. Uh, because although the majority of citizens are black, uh, there's very substantial, you know, communities of whites, of people from South Asia, of other uh, people of different races living in that country. And, uh, you know, the movie is all about the fact that the blacks played football or soccer and the whites played rugby. And Nelson Mandela felt that it was important, given the importance of sport in shaping the way that people think about their identities, that his fellow black South Africans cheer for the Springboks, which was a South African rugby team. And a lot of the members of the ANC, his party, you know, were opposed to this because they said these were the racists that, you know, promoted the apartheid system all these years. Why should we uh, cheer for their team? But I think that Mandela understood that, you know, this is one of the ways you build a common identity is, is through something like sport. Uh, and, you know, it helped them that the Springboks went on to win the, the, the rugby championship. But that's an example of, I think, the kind of statesmanship that is required to build identity, to build this common, you know, this common sense of purpose. Well, amid all the discussion of identity politics now underway, are there any particular issues or questions that you think are being overlooked that you'd want to be sure 
are highlighted? Um, I'm not sure that there are issues that are being overlooked. I think that one issue I think is important to address is, uh, you know, the, the whole issue of immigration. This has been, you know, the Donald Trump's calling card uh, in a very negative and divisive way. But it's also one I think that liberals have not been really willing to, uh, you know, address seriously. Uh, you know, in my view, you know, part of what's driving the populism is not immigration per se, because if you look at poll data on immigration, actually two thirds of Americans, more than two thirds of Americans think that immigration is a good thing. And so they're not unhappy with the fact that, that people are coming to the U.S. What they're unhappy about is illegal immigration. And, you know, there's been this deal in the, in the, that's been in the works ever since the 1980s where you basically do a trade where you, uh, you really get serious about enforcing your existing immigration laws in return for legalizing the, um, undocumented people that are in the country already and have been living here, you know, for some time peacefully. They tried to do this in the early 2000s in the George W. Bush administration and this failed. Uh, and I think it's something that still needs to be done, but there isn't any political will. You know, the conservatives just want the enforcement without the legalization and people on the left, you know, want the legalization and they don't want to worry about enforcement. And I think because of that, that stalemate, uh, we've not gotten anywhere. And I think this is a problem we really need to solve. Well, the Simpson-Mazzoli Act that you refer to in the 1980s, as you also allude to, it was not enforced by presidents of either political party, and arguably it had the very mechanisms you're discussing. Yeah, given had, that, uh, the trouble was that there wasn't anything like a national ID card. I mean, it relied on employer sanctions, which I think you have to rely on, uh, but it was very easy to fake an ID card. So as a result, a lot of people got legalized, but the enforcement side never uh, materialized. And that's why I think a lot of conservatives don't want to do a deal like that because they say the last time we agreed to something like this, the enforcement never happened. So I do think that, you know, if you're going to do a deal like this in the future, you actually have to be serious about enforcement. And that's something, you know, a lot of Democrats will say in principle, yes, we want enforcement. But when it comes down to actually doing the things that you need to enforce the existing laws, they, you know, they really chicken out. Is there any way to really get a hold of all this other than through a presidential campaign that is compelling and has particular individuals who make this a focus. How is this going to get turned around? Well, a lot of stuff can be done at a at a state and local level. Uh, I mean, that's the thing about American federalism is that um, even if things are blocked in Washington, you know, you have ways forward uh, elsewhere. The other thing is, well, there's several ways you can unblock. I mean, one is you can have a external shock like a financial crisis or a you know even a war or you know some a martian invasion i mean there are lots of things that you know suddenly convince people that they're all in it together just the way september 11th did for at least a few months right after that uh that attack uh i also think that people tend to underestimate the importance of good leadership um angry people can be steered in a um, in a dangerous direction, uh, but they can also be steered in a, you know, a, a positive direction. And I just think we have not had leaders that have been 
all that interested in doing uh, doing the latter. Well, for listeners who would like to continue to explore your tremendous thinking on this, in addition to your new book, Identity, The Demand for Dignity and the Politics of Resentment, are there other books that you would recommend either on this issue or on broader political thinking that have been of particular value to you or that you recommend to others? Um, yeah, on uh, this particular question, uh, <laughs> it's, it's funny, you've kind of stumped me on that because there are a lot of other categories where I could recommend a lot of uh, very interesting books. I, I guess, you know, some of the stuff that I've been reading um, is really about uh, the way that the internet and technology have played into this uh, identity issue. And there are a number of pretty good books that have been written uh, recently on that subject that I think explore the ways that the social media and the internet have really had this kind of, uh, <clears throat> you know, negative uh, consequence. Um, one of them is this McNamee book, uh, uh, Zucked, about Facebook and Facebook's role in, uh, you know, in a way subverting American democracy. Uh, I think that's, I mean, since that's the most recent book I've read, you know, I, it's been on my mind. But it just reminds me in the way the ways in which technologies that we thought would actually be helpful to democracy have actually been, you know, um, uh, destructive of it. Well, being mindful that some might think it's ironic, are there particular social media venues where people can look for you and to follow your thinking on events as they happen? Well, I'm on Twitter, <laughs> so if you want to. If you want to get a real-time view of my reactions to things, I would suggest you just follow me on Twitter. It's uh, Fukuyama Francis. Terrific. Well, Francis Fukuyama, thank you so much, and thank you, our listeners, for being with us today. Please rate us highly on iTunes, connect via our website, servetolead.org, or follow us on Twitter at James Strzok. Again, thank you very much. Thank you very much, James, for having me.